season two of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Melissa W. was recorded on August 3rd, 2023. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, um, for their service. There's so many of you that give service to this meeting. I know that. Um if my vo- if you listen to the podcast and you think my voice sounds familiar, that's me. I uh, put the podcast together every week as my service to this meeting, even though I can't always attend because I have littles and it's an, an evening meeting is kind of hard for me. So I appreciate that. I feel like I'm a part of this community, even though my face isn't probably very familiar to you guys. So um, again, I'm Melissa W. I live in Wyoming. I used to live in Arizona. So maybe a lot of you might recognize me from Arizona meetings. And I am an adult child. Actually, I am an adult grandchild of alcoholics. Um, There was no drinking in my home and my family of origin. Um, But I grew up in an extremely dysfunctional home um, and clearly qualified to be an ACA. I, as an adult, I um, am a codependent. I'm a compulsive overeater, perfectionist. I love to play the victim. I'm a denier of blame and my spouse is also a recovering um, workaholic and adult child with his own story to tell. Um, like I said, I was raised by parents who did not drink, but my grandparents on both sides were raging alcoholics. Um, my parents acted like alcoholics. Um, I am the fifth of six girls. And um, my mom had a miscarriage four years before I was born. So unlike any of her other pregnancies, I was not planned. And while she was pregnant for me, pregnant for me, she was terrified of having another miscarriage. Um, So it wasn't really the best way to start life. And I always um, have sort of come to see that through ACA that I started life living inside of a person who was in a constant state of stress. And even though I was never told about the circumstances of my, you know, conception or incubation until I was 18 years old, I think I probably always knew. Um, It's a concept that I heard of on another podcast called the unthought known. It's things that um, we know, even if we can't consciously remember them. Um, So I grew up in, like I said, a dysfunctional home. My dad was a workaholic, a codependent. He was an enabler as well. He was physically abused as a child. And ultimately that led him to become all the things as an adult, an enabler, primarily of my mom. Um, He smoked, he was a compulsive overeater. And later in life, he would, um, he would struggle with drinking after my mom died in 2010. But my dad actually was really the, the, the calm force of my childhood. He um, was the person I always felt like I could depend on. Um, my true qualifier for ACA is my mom. My mom was a rager. Um, she was a narcissist. She was a compulsive overeater. Um, she was a, a survivor of incest. Um, and her and my dad lived a very codependent life, almost their entire lives together. Her family of origin was really, really screwed up. Um, so 
as a result, my mom was the storm that destroyed me as a child. And even though no one drank, um, the crazy was still there in my house. There was always crazy, but I didn't, you know, unlike some of my friends who could be like, oh yeah, well, her dad's a drunk in my house. It was like, what was the excuse for all the weird things that went on in my house? There wasn't one. It just felt like we were crazy. And it was, it was shameful. I carried that shame around with me. Um, and much like that sort of pervasive dysfunction that you can't really pin down, I myself felt really unseen as a child, unheard, unworthy. And I grew up feeling like a disappointment. Um, I, my older, three, at least three of my older sisters, like delighted in me as a baby because I was born so much younger than them. Um, but truly there were no adults that ever delighted in me as a child. I never felt like my parents took any joy in having me as their child. And I think even worse than that, my mom withheld emotional connection and love as a way of controlling us kids. So whatever I did, it was always either to earn that emotional connection, try to earn that emotional connection, but truly it was never actually enough for my mom. Um, and I internalized all of that abandonment and my survival skills were one to be silly because that's what, how I, my older sisters connected with me. So I would make people laugh. But on the other hand, um, even though there was this sort of exterior that looked like I was very confident and, and silly on the inside, I didn't trust anyone, especially my parents, um, because I believed and and it was unintentional probably on their part, but they, they allowed me to be sort of tormented as a child. And the biggest tormentor as a child was my grandfather. I was uh, molested. I was sexually molested by my grandfather um, on my mom's side. And again, my, my mom grew up in that dysfunction. And then my maternal grandfather would eventually not only molest all of his own children, some of his nieces and nephews, but many, if not most of his grandchildren as well. Um, he himself was abandoned as a child um, by his mother into a state-run orphanage. And then later she tried to kidnap him back from his adopted parents. So he had all those um, classical abandonment and trauma issues himself. But then as an adult, he, he made choices as an adult to beat his wife, to uh, molest his kids. Um, he also murdered his seven-year-old son and covered that up and never was in trouble for it. And it wouldn't ever come out until after he was long dead. Um, he got the neighbor's teenage daughter pregnant. He would um, molest his grandchildren and, and, and really just got away with it because my grandmother was an enabler as well. I actually wouldn't even remember that I was molested until I was well into my twenties. Um, but you know, he, and he died when I was in second grade, but I, I carried all of that with me, even though I didn't consciously know, I could have never told you that I'd been molested until I was, until much later in life. Um, so he died when I was in second grade. And here's a story about how dysfunctional my family is. At his funeral, everybody was happy. <laughs> that, that seems really confusing to a kid. I would have been really sad if my dad died when I was a kid. So I didn't understand why all these people were happy instead of sad. Um, not that I was sad that he was gone, but it just seemed really weird to go to a funeral and have people be really happy. Um, but it is one of the many places that I learned not to talk about what was actually going on. So I didn't trust the adults around me and I didn't talk about what was going on in my family. Um, 
And so those are what don't talk, don't trust. And the other one is don't feel. Um, I, I think by the time I was in elementary school, I was this, you know, big, tall kid by fifth grade. I was like five, four by eighth grade. I was five foot eight. So I was always bigger than the other kids in my class. And they used to weigh us in PE and I, and I weighed like a hundred pounds, but I was five foot four. So that really, I wasn't big, but I was like, I must be fat because my friends all weighed like 70 pounds, but they were also like four foot eight. Um, when I told my mom that about that, she didn't offer like, Hey, this is normal development and your preteen body. And you, you know, all these things, she just offered that maybe I should just go on a diet because she herself struggled with overeating. Um, and you know, I have a daughter that, um, struggles with an eating disorder and there's just no scenario in which I would ever suggest to her that she go on a diet, even though that's obviously not her problem because she struggles with restriction, but I just can't imagine telling my child that there's something wrong with their body in that way. Um, yet my, my mom did just that. And she really failed to acknowledge that this, here was this kid that just needed to be, um, well, I needed to be acknowledged. And then this kid that needed to have some connection about what it was to grow into a body. There was no loving discussion about that or hormones or bodies or anything like that, because anything that had to do with bodies was, was like shameful. And I grew up in a, in a pretty strict Catholic home and it was anything about that's even like my hint of sex was a sin and it was wrong. And so, um, it really set me up at that one moment in time when she said I should go on a diet for this, um, lifetime of believing that not only was there something wrong with me, that, that feeling that resulted from being molested, but there was also something wrong with my body. And really when you don't, when you think there's something wrong here and something wrong with the physical there, it really just sets you up for this lifetime of looking for ways to numb that pain. But the message that I learned was loud and clear, not to feel. And I learned a lot of ways not to feel primarily with food and bad relationships. Um, as an adult, I would find more ways or better ways, but to not feel by, um, you know, drama and clutter, procrastination, over-involvement, um, volunteering, all kinds of things like that. But as a kid, I really, I ate and I had, and I had bad relationships um, starting by seventh or eighth grade. Um, no one knew that I was eating, overeating or using food as my drug because I was a teenager and my metabolism was, you know, crazy off the charts. So, you know, like I said, by eighth grade, I would be five foot eight, but I still only weighed like 110 pounds. Um, I had a pretty big bust and a head of dark red hair. And that really got me noticed by older boys. And that seemed like another perfect drug um, for my teenage years. And so I was like, yeah, yes, please. I'm nothing without having a guy in my life. And those, those bad relationships, um, would continue well into my, uh, twenties and thirties, even though I, I got counseling, I still continued to choose those bad relationships because that was my drug of trying to fix other people. Like that confusing love with pity. I, that definitely happened to me from day one of having any kind of a romantic relationship. Um, so I spent my teenage years and my young adult years really numb and disassociated from my feelings. Um, in adulthood, my metabolism would slow down and the eating would catch up with me. And so my weight would go up and down. 
And, you know, I had sort of my first true love in college. And when he broke up with me, which, I mean, I'm not saying he shouldn't have broke up with me because I was kind of a hot mess, but that heartache um, propelled me into marrying the first man who came along. And at 23, I married a man who um, I would later find out was bipolar and he was very manic depressive in his, in his emotions. He was also an alcoholic and he turned out to be violent, like a violent person who, who would end up beating me. And I really should have known it sort of going in. But when you're, when you're 23, you believe like, well, if we get married, then everything will be better. Then our happily ever after will come. And so I married a man who raged at his mom in the back of the church. <laughs> like he was yelling at her in the hearing of everybody at the wedding. And I didn't think I had a choice to, to be like, put the brakes on. Because in my mind, I, I felt like I knew my mom would say, well, you know what? You made this bed. Now you have to lie in it. That, that's kind of one of those um, sayings in my family that I, I felt like, you know, you, you get yourself into this mess. You have to get yourself out. No one said to me, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea or what the heck is going on with this guy. Um, but basically, I married my grandfather in a lot of ways, this narcissistic, alcoholic, bipolar, wife beating um, guy. Um, I would gain a ton of weight when I was married. Um, and when the police escorted him out of our apartment the first time, we'd only been married for four months. Um, and I, so I eventually would divorce him. I'd lose the weight. I'd go into counseling and figure out I'd been molested as a child, but, and I even learned about inner child stuff, but I didn't actually find recovery that that was not something anybody pointed me to at that point. So while I had a better understanding of who I was and where I had come from, I, I didn't really know what, that I was making these, this cycle, I was like in this cycle. And so I would find new men to be codependent with. They were, you know, much less crazy than my first husband, but I continued to be in that cycle of bad relationships. Um, I wouldn't get married again until I was 39. And I am still married to that man. We are both adult children. I didn't know that before we were married. I've been in ACA for five years and he's been in for about four years in ACA as well. Um, we endured four miscarriages during our marriage. Um, but we've also adopted two kids who were, who we were foster parents to. Um, and the nature of, of foster care, the thing that sort of breaks my heart about it is that my kids will qualify to be an ACA because foster care by just by the very mechanics of removing children from one home and putting them in another one is abandonment and trauma front and center. And so it's kind of heartbreaking that that's how our family started in, in this way that, you know, what we were doing was completely necessary for these children, but also knowing that this was going to be their lifetime burden as well of a dysfunction that not necessarily of our making, but that we in some ways participated in by being the place where they were placed after they were removed from their family of origin. Um, but foster care is actually what brought me to ACA. Uh, we had had a four-year-old girl placed with us who brought me, my marriage, my husband to our knees. Her trauma was really profound and it opened up all of our old wounds. And by our, I mean, my husband and I, um, she had been sexually abused, physically abused, emotionally abused, and she was only four years old. And so that child was more like a feral animal than a child. And when she finally left our care, we were on the brink of divorce. Um, 
So we went to counseling together and separately. Um, and I confronted my husband about his behavior, his harm and his dysfunction. <laughs> um, and as I like to say, you can imagine how well that went when you confront somebody else. Afterwards, our therapist would point out to me in my individual session that perhaps I needed to explore 12-step recovery for my codependency. And I was a little bit taken aback. I had read some books about codependency in my 20s, and I thought, me, I'm not codependent. I totally am not codependent. So, but in order to prove him wrong, I said, yeah, I'll go to, I'll go to 12-step. So I really came to ACA um, really actually kind of angry. Um, I was in denial and I came to the rooms really with like this list of things that if my husband would do that, everything would be better. Um, and I meant that seriously, a list, which is like kind of ridiculous looking back at it, but I could not see my codependency because of my need to control everyone else was so loud in my head that I couldn't see how I was in these relationships that all of my value was look was outside of myself and my reactions and, and interactions with other people. Like, so I, I really couldn't see that. Um, what I did love about ACA is that I could speak my truth. Um, and even if everybody in the meeting knew I was wrong, they still let me speak my truth and nobody ever talked over me or told me I was wrong. Um, and that, felt like I was being heard and like I was being loved. Those were all the things I didn't get as a kid. Um, my ACA group let me go through that sort of painful growth that's recovery. Um, much like a lot of people's story, as soon as I heard the laundry list, I'd start crying. I cried at every meeting for two months, but nobody rushed in to fix me, um, which was kind of disappointing because I thought if I went to 12 step, like someone would rush up, offer to be my sponsor and they would just like help me get fixed. And so that it was, it was really disappointing. <laughs> That's not how ACA worked, but ACA did help me find a voice and kind of walk into the light of responsibility. And the biggest thing for me really has been learning about becoming my own loving parent. And in the last year, um, I've been in a group where we work through the, the loving parent guidebook. And that has been that, you know, I, I say doing the steps was life altering and then doing the laundry list workbook was life altering, but doing the loving parent guidebook also was life altering for me. Um, but it really helped me see that I, and all those things I was complaining about that were wrong. I had a part in it. I, it was not actually my husband who needed to change. It was me. And as I, I sort of expanded that recovery in, and was open to those ideas, I really, I can't, I just, I'm so grateful for being in the, in the rooms. And I've attended a lot of ACA meetings and, and I've hardly ever gone more than a week without attending a meeting since the summer of 2018. Um, I worked my steps several times. I always tell people I'm far from fully recovered. I don't think there's, that's even a thing. Um, what I, what you learn about it, recovery at the 12th step is that recovery is actually a, a complete process and a lifetime. It's not just a, oh, here you're at the 12th step. Goodbye. You're fixed. Um, which also I, that's was, seems like false advertising on the part of 12 step groups in general, because I was like, I thought you're going to say 12 steps. It should be done at 12 steps. I shouldn't have to keep coming back, but I am ha happy to have, we keep coming back and, 
um, and to learn on those things. The, you know, the, the most important thing that's changed for me is that loving higher power. Um, really, when I was listening to them read the steps just now, and it said, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves um, could restore us to sanity. That really, I, I struggled with that because as a kid, I grew up, as I said, in a Catholic family where the God of my childhood was this old man with a white beard, um, you know, like he had a lightning bolt and it was all about hellfire and brimstone. And he, you know, might've had like this fairy tale hippie for a son and a pet dove that could shapeshift in Pentecostal flames, but it really was all about guilt and shame. And what am I doing wrong? It didn't feel like there was anything loving coming from that unless I was perfect. And that guy, as I got into ACA had to go, that guy, quite frankly, was a jerk. That guy, quite frankly, was my mom. Um, and so today my higher power is a much less foreboding sort of person. In my mind, I think of my higher power as a mix of God's, of the old God's pet dove minus the flames and the hippie son. Um, I think of my higher power as being really gentle and radiant and loving, safe, um, effeminate, unhurried, probably wears Birkenstocks, you know, um, and he's just this patiently waiting for me, this presence is patiently waiting for me to let go and walk with, with him in peace and accept that sort of unlimited grace that's available to me. I, I never really, there's, you've heard this song, Amazing Grace. And I'm like, what's so amazing about grace? I, I, because I had no idea there was no grace ever offered to me as a kid. And then to come to ACA and discover that grace is there for whenever I'm ready to let go, I have something to fall back into and I will be okay. And I don't have to control everything around me. And the really the true biggest grace that I've received is the grace of not having to be in control of everybody else in the world. Um, and I really tried very hard to be in control of everybody else in the world as I, um, even in, even in my first year of recovery, I was, I struggled. I was probably a worse mom my first year of recovery than I, than I ever was. Um, and it's really hard being a parent and being in recovery and feeling like, am I revisiting all of this stuff on my kids? Um, because I really don't, I don't want to cause the trauma that my parents caused. And so I struggle with that a lot, um, with that idea of, am I causing more harm? Am, am I not, am I doing the same things that were done to me? I think probably the biggest thing I've learned in recovery is this, that recovery is slow. You can do your step work really fast. I mean, you, you'll get what you put into it. And so if you do it fast, you're not putting as much into it probably as you could, but recovery happens like nightfall in summer. It is slow and soft and but little by little it's very much happening and the reason why it's so slow is it, this is my belief is because for 50 years i've done the same dysfunctional things and dysfunctional behavior is like any other kind of behavior it's a muscle memory we don't think when we walk we just walk well that's how dysfunctional behavior is we don't think when we do things that are dysfunctional we just do things that are dysfunctional and in order to be able to retrain my brain to, to do things that are not dysfunctional requires a lot of work and a lot of really intentional work. 
um, I, I, through my 10th step, I discovered I had been writing in my 10th step over and over again about struggling with having, my daughter was a preteen then she's a teenager now about just every time, you know, I struggle with her it's the same shit, different day. Um, and I'd write about it in my 10th step. And I was like, God, my, my sponsor is going to call me out pretty soon and be like, dude, you've been writing about this way too many times. You need to fix it. Um, but you know, that's not how sponsors are. They're actually really kind and gentle people, much like my higher power. And they just let me run through my stuff and do as I need to. And I was really making all of these things about me. Whenever something was happening, it was like, how dare you talk back? How dare you tease your brother? How dare you disobey me? How dare you do this? It was really about what it was sort of doing to me and not about why she was doing it. Um, so yeah, I sound like mom of the year, right? Um, but every damn time I made her behavior about me and I let that sort of inner child or inner teen, um, who's probably about 13 years old herself, like lash out in resentment. Um, I wanted to be in control. I wanted to be the boss. I, I wanted to withhold love and, and expect by it and then expect her to be some kind of perfect, which is the exact same thing my parents did to me. So it was really, I mean, it's talking about it even is it's embarrassing writing about it. It was embarrassing. I was like, how can I not, how am I just doing the same thing over and over again? Um, but I, what I did learn because I was doing a written 10 step is that one day when my daughter was kind of throwing down her best sassholery, which is what I like to call my kids, their sassholes. Um, she was sassing at me. And instead of going to that, how dare you sort of um, script, my brain kind of clicked into adulting and the words came out of my mouth. Like, Hey, it sounds like you're struggling. What's going on. And that sounds like totally normal, a totally normal thing to say to a kid. But I was struggling with that because I didn't have a model of that. And that's not what my brain wanted to do. Cause for 50 years I'd lived with that inner child that was like, look, the way you parent is by being in control and telling everybody what to do and how dare you. And that day that it clicked in, it was like, it was so amazing. It was a day where in my 10th step, I could write, this went right today instead of this going sideways. And then I went and flipped back through my journal and I had written about her and I struggling 57 different times. It had been 57 days, maybe not in a row, but 57 times that I had written about her and I struggling and having like butting heads. And all it, it seems so simple to just say, hey, it sounds like you're struggling. But my brain was wired for, you know, like whatever, 50 years of reacting to each and every person I encountered, like they were the enemy. Um, but, you know, those 57 days are really, that's what progress is. It's not perfection because I still have my days. I'm kind of a nightmare. Um, you know, I recently um, one time was in an argument with her in our backyard and I smacked her. I've never touched her before in my life. And I smacked her and I spiraled from there thinking like, what kind of mom am I that I would do that? Because recovery and emotional sobriety is not some kind of perfect life. It's being able to recognize it and then make your amends for it and move forward from it and truly learning from it. And so I was able to say, I was sorry to my daughter that it was, you know, I shouldn't be using my body to scare her. Um, and, and get really back into the doing that sort of eighth and ninth as part of like my daily routine, instead of waiting to do an eighth and ninth step, like, you know, 10 years from now, it's really part of my life because I do that written 10th step. 
So um, it does take a daily commitment for me to that, that quiet introspection. That's the 11th step of, of kind of looking at um, how am I being, a, and I, um, I don't think it's in ACA, but in another program, I heard they use the St. Francis prayer, which is like, make me a channel of your peace. With, and I, so I read that at the front of my journal every day. That's sort of my 11th step. And then my 10th step, I, you know, I have baggage. I, I, you know, what I've told you tonight is just a tiny sliver of all the baggage that I have, but by doing my 10th step, at least I'm not stuffing more junk into that trunk. I'm taking care of my last 24 hours. And what I really learned from that is that, um, and this is really coming into that loving parent guidebook part of it is that when I don't stuff a bunch more junk on top of all the other junk that was there from the last 50 years, um, my inner child's willing to hand me some really deep and painful memories and that I can work through those and reparent those memories and those moments in ways that allow me to actually let go of them instead of just carrying, like dragging around literally in this trunk of like shit that happened to me over the last 50 years. Um, and that's been really powerful to me. Um, that the 10th step is really something that my inner children love. It's creates, um, this sort of uh, this trusting relationship of, of seeing me at least being able to acknowledge what's gone on in the last 24 hours. But that really makes my inner child see me as an adult, that I am capable of being an adult because otherwise I wasn't capable of being an adult. I was just pushing everything down and being like, uh, you know, I'll make amends for that, you know, next year or something. Cause, uh, I often say it's so much easier to say I was an asshole 20 years ago than it is to say I was an asshole 20 minutes ago. Um, and that is, that's the growth that goes on through having to do a 10th step. And sometimes I make amends just because I don't want to write about it in my 10th step. I'm like, the right thing to do is to say that you're wrong and move on from here instead of being like righteous, like, well, I'm right and they're wrong. <laughs> that's the controlling me. Um, but really in this last year, what I've learned about my, my inner parent and my inner loving parent is I could not, and my critical parent, is I could not see the difference between my critical parent and my teenager. So anytime I had a sort of what negative thought of any type, I was like, oh, that is my inner teenager. I was blaming everything on my inner teenager. And there's a place in the Loving Parent Guidebook where it talks about your critical parent is not emotional. So they're not like yelling and screaming and saying, you know, um, that you know, like, oh, you're wrong and everything's right or those kind of things. My critical parent, what I've discovered in the last year is actually sounds a lot like my mother-in-law. So my critical parent is the one that says, mm, should you do that? Or, oh, I wouldn't have chose that way. That's my mother-in-law. That's my critical inner parent. My teenager is the one that's like, that's fucking unfair. So they're totally actually two different things going on that I had been enabled or not enabled. I had been labeling this whole time as like all of that's my teenager, anything that happened. And by able to separate that, then when I feel those big emotions coming up, instead of be, just being like, you know, like, oh, that's my critical parent or that's my critical voice. I can see that that's a moment for reparenting where I need to say, oh my gosh, what feels threatened here? Like, what am I scared of happening? Um, in what this interaction is, what there's a child that, if I have all this big emotion, it's a child reacting. And, and as I mean, I even watch my seven-year-old, everything is a big emotion with him. 
And I see now that when I feel a big emotion, that has nothing to do with like a critical voice. That has everything to do with, with my inner child having fear about something about the situation. And a lot of times it isn't the actual situation. It's something completely different, but having the ability to sort of see the difference between those. And then as far as that kind of critical parent voice, the mother-in-law voice, that one's a much easier to say, you know what? I got this because I can to my own mother-in-law, I can say, oh, thanks, but that's not how I do it in this family. I'm that's easy for me to do with my mother-in-law. So knowing that I can apply that to my critical parent, but then spending that time loving on my teenager is really hard. And you know why? Because I have a flesh and blood teenager and it is really hard to love on her sometimes when she's being an asshole. Um, And I have to step back and take a moment and take a breath and go, why is she doing this? And a lot of times she's doing it because she feels scared about something and she needs to be recognized as feeling scared. Or she just, you know, teenagers, prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. So they make decisions that are really, really dumb. And then they try to defend it with a really, really bad lie. And there's no win there because they will stand by that lie. I mean, they, they're going to die on that hill. And, and I have to, am I going to die on this hill? And I'm like, no, I'm not dying on this hill. I mean, I'm not dying on the hill of a stupid lie. You know, I'm not dying on the hill of like illogical teenage thinking. Um, so that for me in the last year, just being able to separate those two things and really see that all those big emotions are always a child and not being like, oh, that's just my critical parent. Because when I was doing that, I was being dismissive of my inner teenager and I wasn't loving on her and I wasn't looking to see what needed healed under under there. I just was like, oh, that's that, that critical parent. That's, that's my parents talking. That's my modeling. And really that's, that wasn't true. That was my teenager trying to be heard when she was having all of these huge emotions around things. So that's been a big, a big, um, lesson for me this year or a big learning moment for me this year. Uh, you know, I've also learned in ACA that, um, whenever I'm searching for a solution, if my, if what I come up with involves anyone else acting or doing something other than myself, then it's actually not a solution. It's, it's codependency. It's me trying to control other people. Um, my, in my solutions, the only actor is me and you know, that's that sort of spiritual awakening of, of the idea of um, the reason I have recovery is because every day I practice my 10th and 11th step. And every day I think about how I'm going to be of service. I sponsor, I am in service in meetings. Like I said, I do the podcast for this meeting and I do those things because they keep me connected to that very humble place that knows that I'll never be perfect and I'll never be in control. Um, and I, and then I do that fourth step when I need to, whether it's with the help of my sponsor or a therapist or a fellow traveler. Um, I know that um, I have to always be in recovery for my life because it's, there's no ending to recovery. It's a process and, but I'm so much better at it right? Like I can just do a four step without having to think about one, two, and three, because I've got those, but now I need to do that deep dive into this, this big emotion or big memory that's come up. Um, and I do believe that you can't keep recovery if you don't give it away. 
So you don't get any more out of ACEA than what you put into it. Um, and when I'm doing things that are less than recovered, like I'm overeating or I'm raging or I'm shaming my kids or I'm blaming my husband, um, then if I'm not owning it in my 10th step, I'm really out of recovery. If I can at least own it in my 10th step, at least I can say, look, I know I'm doing it less than perfect, but I'm not pointing fingers. I'm like, unless it's just pointing at myself, I'm, I'm really looking at what I'm doing and walking away from it too. Um, but I do, I own my behavior. If it involves another person, I apologize or set better boundaries, but I don't blame people for hurting my feelings because my feelings are my responsibility. And I don't, again, I don't wait 20 years to make amends. Um, I, I try to do it, you know, hopefully within the next 24 hours. Um, my favorite ACA readings are always going to be the solution and the promises. If I'm having a bad day, I will just go and read the promises. But of course, I love the solution because the solution to everything is, am I being my own loving parent or am I looking for someone else to parent me? Because if Five I am minutes, looking, Melissa, thank you. If I'm looking for someone else to parent me, if I'm like asking my husband to take care of me or do something that I don't want to do, then I'm really starting to slip into this sort of victim mentality, trying to be play the helplessness to get what I want. So I am, I'm just so grateful to be back here. I, I, it was probably been two and a half or three years since I spoke to you guys. And I was excited when Dottie asked me to come back um, because I love this meeting and I get to hear every speaker at this meeting. Um, and I really, I enjoy um, being able to share my experience, strength and hope with everyone. If I could leave you with anything, it is um, no matter where you are in your recovery, it is to start journaling, putting pen to paper is there's something really cathartic about it. And when you manifest those words on paper, you can, you, you're not only committing to the emotions and to the behaviors, but it's also you can shut that journal and walk away from it. And that physical idea of walking away from of it instead of carrying it around with us, which is what our families made us do, was carry around all that guilt and shame. Um, I think journaling is really super important no matter how you do it. And so thank you so much for letting me speak today. Uh, my service again is my recovery. So I hope that I've helped shine a light into the darkness for you guys. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for letting me be here and letting and being a part of my 12 steps.